is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to yet another episode of Going West. Here we are. Are you guys sick of Daphne saying that? Do I say that every time? (laughs) I think it's every time. I don't know what else to say. That's your tagline, though. (laughs) Yeah, it is. You're right. It's my new tagline. And thank you to Brittany in particular for recommending this case that we have for you guys today. As many of us know, there is an epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and people and girls, and we always want to bring awareness to their cases whenever possible. So we really appreciate you sending this one to us, Britt, so we can share it with everybody else. Yes, thank you so much, Brittany, for recommending this case to us. Also, if you want to suggest a case... Uh, make sure you send us an email at goingwestpodcast at gmail.com. That's where we're going to respond, and that's where we're going to see your suggestions. Yes, on social media, we do get a lot of DMs. I know you guys send DMs, but we don't check them very often because we get a lot. So, so sorry about that, but just make sure you email us instead because we do check all of those. All right, guys, this is episode 205 of Going West, so let's get into it. In July of 1989, an 18-year-old indigenous woman in Michigan went missing after a night out with friends. Shortly after her disappearance, the local police received a disturbing phone call where a frantic man confessed to her murder. Years passed after the discovery of her body and police continued to question people in and out of her circle. But it wouldn't be until 22 years later that movement finally came to her case. This is the story of Shannon Siders. Shannon Marie Siders was born on March 31, 1971 to Robert, or Bob, and Mary Siders in Big Rapids, Michigan. Her mother Mary was an indigenous woman from Mackinac Island and belonged to the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, part of the greater group of Bay indigenous peoples, which spans much of the Great Lakes and Canada. This particular chapter of the Chippewa tribe encompasses seven counties and has over 44,000 tribe members today, and Shannon's mom Mary eventually became an elder of this tribe. But when Shannon was just four years old, her parents Bob and Mary divorced, and her father Bob gained full custody of her. And as an only child, Shannon really was the light of his life. He said of her childhood that she'd been a healthy, beautiful, tiny baby who thrived in his care and grew into a gifted and promising teenager. Bob really seemed like he was such a great dad. Yeah. When Shannon was young, she and her dad relocated to Nuego, Michigan, on the western side of the Lower Peninsula, just about a 40-minute drive from her hometown of Big Rapids, Michigan. Nuego is a small city that at this time hosted only about 1,500 residents, situated 30 miles or 48 kilometers from the shores of Lake Michigan. 
It was settled around 100 BC and was known for hunting, trapping, and fishing by indigenous tribes, including the Peoria and Odawa, which eventually became the name of Canada's capital city of Ottawa. Shannon grew into a sweet, caring young woman and a great friend. According to her close friend Julia, you could tell her anything without fear of judgment, and everyone liked her. In the summer of 1989, when this story takes place, Shannon was newly 18 years old. Her dad had recently taken a job with Pepsi Cola, working the third shift from midnight to 8.30 a.m., and anyone who's ever worked this shift knows how rough it can be to maintain like a normal life balance, and I actually do know what that's like. Yes, you do. So on July 17, 1989, around 10.30 p.m., Bob was getting ready for work and Shannon had just gotten out of the bath. Afterwards, she came out of the bathroom in sweatpants with a towel on her head. Bob told her that he was leaving for work and that he loved her and kissed her on the forehead before she went upstairs to get ready to go out with some friends. And sadly, that would be the last time that he would ever see his daughter in a situation that was so normal to their routine. When Bob returned home from his shift the following morning, Shannon still hadn't come home. He knew she'd gone out, of course, but expected to find her home and sleeping by the time he got back. And it was so unusual that she wasn't quite home yet that Bob started walking around the neighborhood shouting for her, wondering if maybe she was at a neighbor's house. But when there was no sign of her, he called the police. And like you said, Heath, this was not normal. So much so that he almost immediately called the police after noticing that she hadn't been home, which really tells us that she wasn't the type of young woman to be out all night, even though she could because she was 18, you know, especially without telling her dad who she was so close with. Yeah, definitely. So Nuego is the kind of town where everyone knows everyone, and things like this just don't happen, especially because their population at this time was only around 1,500 people, like I mentioned. And because the town was so small, Word about Shannon's absence spread quickly, and police soon received a tip that there was a woman named Shannon hiding out in one of the known dope houses in the area. When they went to check it out, it was a different young woman named Shannon, which made sense because this tip didn't sound like it would be Shannon Siders anyway. That summer, a 15-year-old girl named Amy Bonner was working at the police station as a receptionist, and she received a terrifying phone call shortly after Shannon went missing. When Amy answered this call, a man who sounded very frantic stated, quote, I just killed Shannon Siders. And then he abruptly hung up. Amy was obviously very unsettled by this call, especially since she was so young. Yeah, only 15. Yeah, and she became determined to find out where the call came from. But the problem was, the call was so short and sudden that police were unable to trace it. Over Labor Day weekend of 1989, so a month and a half after Shannon had gone missing, two men found two identification cards of Shannon's loose in some brush near a place called the Hole in the Woods, which was a well-known local party spot for teenagers located in the 500,000-acre Manistee Forest that surrounded Nuego. These men also found a pair of blue jeans nearby, but it was unclear if they were what Shannon had been wearing or not, because remember, her dad Bob had last seen her in sweatpants 
as she was getting ready that night. And Bob himself searched the area extensively as well, willing his daughter to lead him to her, but he turned up nothing. Another month went by with no more clues as to where she was or what had happened to her, totaling the search to almost four months. But then, on October 15, 1989, a deer hunter in the Manistee Forest stumbled upon a gruesome scene. He reported what he'd found to the state police in Nuego, who went out to investigate right away. And around midnight, Bob was called into the station and was told that what was feared was true. In the same area that Shannon's IDs were found, Shannon's body was found. Meaning if Bob had walked just a little bit farther when he was out searching for her in September after the IDs were discovered, he would have stumbled upon his daughter's body. That's so, that's so like upsetting to know that he was in that area uh, where the IDs were originally and, and that, she, so and that was she. she and so was she. She was so close yet so far away. So within days, an autopsy was performed and it confirmed that Shannon had died of blunt force trauma to the head. She had also been sexually assaulted and when she was found, her pants were off and her underwear was around one ankle. And horrifically, her genitals had been cut after she had been killed. With that, the police felt strongly that whoever did this to her knew her personally in some way, but Bob was sure of it. So sure that he said he had to be careful who he asked her pallbearers to be. Worried that a male friend or classmate in attendance might have done this to his daughter. Instead, he asked Shannon's female cousins to carry her. And I do wonder why he was so sure, like if he knew that she had some shady or bad male friends, because just with the information we have on her autopsy, my mind wouldn't go to, oh, this is someone she knew for sure, you know, because usually for my mind to go there, it's a very intimate and violent attack that feels personal. And not that her attack wasn't violent because it absolutely was, but either way, it was good of him to be cautious, and you guys will see why in a bit here. Yeah, and I mean, it's hard when you live in such a small town to, to think that it could be an outsider, but we're going to get to that. Oh, yeah. Almost Shannon's entire high school came out to her funeral because, again, she was very beloved. And at the funeral, many different friends wrote various letters that they dropped into her grave next to her. While the town was grieving investigators were getting to work to find her killer. Yeah, and, and like you said, you know, knowing this town is so small, two probably made them want to solve it even more because if it was one of the 1,500 people amongst them, they needed to find that person quick. Absolutely, because they could have a killer on the loose. Yeah, and in and, and such a small group of people. So the Michigan State Police Behavioral Analysis Team in Lansing built a profile for the person or people that they thought might have killed her. They agreed that it was likely someone who knew Shannon, that it was probably sexually motivated, and that drugs and alcohol were a factor. Because of the nature of the crime, it's also likely that it was more than one person, which is even more terrifying. And as you can guess, this had shocking fallout for the small community of Nuego. Bob said he looked for his daughter's killer everywhere he went, knowing it could be anyone in town that he crossed paths with. But the town wanted to think that it was a stranger or an outsider because that would have been a lot easier to stomach. 
Bob was relentless in his search to bring his beloved daughter's killer to justice. He even put up a billboard looking for answers on the highway outside of Nuego and persuaded almost 50 businesses in and around the town to post who killed Shannon Siders? Someone knows something on their signs. Bob said, quote, if she was killed in a car accident, all the things I've been doing might seem weird, but she wasn't. Somebody killed my daughter and there's nothing to say he won't kill again. A forensic entomologist or insect expert was brought in to determine approximately how long Shannon's body had been in those woods based on the amount of decay and bugs on her body. The entomologist concluded that she had been there since the last few weeks of July or the first few weeks of August, so at least a couple months before she was found. And remember, she was last seen on July 17th, so they're saying at least since the end of July, but it could have been right after she disappeared as well. Exactly. So once again, police started making their rounds to question people in and out of her circle. And you guys are probably wondering who Shannon was with the evening she disappeared, because that is pretty important. Yes, it is. Well, there were eight people known to have last seen her alive. So one by one, they were given polygraph tests. That fateful July night after Bob left for work, Shannon had gone out with some classmates from school that her friend Julia said were not her usual friend group. There were eight kids spread between three cars heading to the hole in the woods to drink, which again is where her IDs and body were later found. Among this group of friends was a young man named Brandon Seavers. Julia, who again is Shannon's best friend, later told investigators that Shannon had said she was scared of Brandon and, quote, didn't want to be alone with him and that he was angry and mean. So this doesn't look good. And he also sounds like he wasn't a big fan of women in general, calling them sluts and whores. Wow. That's like a red flag. Cool guy, Brandon. (laughs) Yeah. Um, A few tips also came in that Brandon had left town after she went missing which made him even more suspicious. And as we constantly say, people of interest who leave town or move after someone goes missing or is murdered is always a bad look. Yeah, at least in our minds. Yeah, and because of all of this potential suspicion against Brandon, he was brought in for questioning and given a polygraph test as well. Now, he claimed that he had driven Shannon at some point in the evening, but that she had been ready to go home before he was. So she got in the car with someone else and left, and then he didn't see her again. Something I want to bring up before I forget is that it's interesting that he says she was in his car at some point, because that makes me think if they had checked his car and her DNA was in there, that he would have a reason for that. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. I just wanted to say that now, but I will bring that up again later. After further questioning, Brandon stated that the trip he took after she went missing turned out to be a trip to Colorado to pick up a cousin and bring them back to Nuego, Michigan. So he had returned after just a couple days, not disappearing as tips suggested. And for those wondering, Colorado is multiple states away from Michigan, so this would have been at least a 15-hour drive each way. Police then questioned Dean Robinson based on reports that he had been there that night and that he had a history of violence towards women. But as with Brandon, nothing came of this. 
As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/goingwest. There's no safe like Simply Safe. With how busy our schedules are, Heath and I are constantly ordering food and groceries from DoorDash. It just saves us a ton of time when we can't run to the store for ingredients or don't feel like cooking and want delicious takeout instead. But delivery fees can definitely add up, and this is why we have Dash Pass by DoorDash. Dash Pass is an exclusive membership from DoorDash that gets you unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders as well as member-only deals and discounts. Which is why DashPass is the most affordable way to get anything and everything you need delivered right to your door, and fast, for just $9.99 a month. Which means DoorDash quickly pays for itself in just two orders on average. So whether you order every day or just a couple of times a month, you'll save with DashPass. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Also brought in for questioning were brothers Paul and Matt Jones, who went by Skip, but we're not going to call them that. And they grew up south of Nuego. They claim to have been the last people to see Shannon alive, having gone back to Shannon's house to watch a movie and drink beer once the friend group was done hanging out in the hole in the woods. However, they said that when they arrived at the cider's home, she decided that she was too tired and went inside to go to bed. The brothers also relayed a detailed description of this scene. They said that they noticed that she had left the TV and porch light on and her dog ran to greet her at the front door. They said that they had dropped her off back at home between 12 and 2 a.m., so about seven to nine hours before Bob returned home. And both brothers were given a polygraph test to check their stories, but they both passed. After their initial round of questioning, tips to police slowed down and the investigation lost traction. And after that, the case went cold. Situations like this are so frustrating, like how police had this feeling that the killer was someone Shannon knew, and then learning she was with all these young men that night, some who were violent and troubled, they question them and don't find anything. So they just have to go off what these guys are saying because nothing suspicious is standing out to them enough to pursue any of these guys. Yeah, and it's just the other frustrating part is that like, it's like her body was found in the hole in the woods and police know now know that all this group of kids went out to the hole in the woods that night. Right. 
So it just has to be connected in some way. I totally agree. That's not like some weird coincidence here. But also it's frustrating because at this time, there could have been vital DNA evidence in any of these guys' cars because we know that she had been in some of their cars at least, right? Yeah. But there was nothing that stuck out, stuck out enough to police that they could obtain a search warrant for any of them, their homes or their cars, you know? Right. And just, yeah, like knowing the fact that she was with that group, it's like, like why, why would we even test for DNA? Because we know that she was in at least one or two of those cars. That's true. But also if there had been blood or anything along those lines, that could help as well. But absolutely. But you're right. That's the problem. Just like I said with Brandon, if he said, oh, she was in my car and they find DNA evidence that she was in the car, it's like, yeah, because I drove her around that night. So you're yeah, right. He already it's... explained that he did drive her yeah. at some point. Oh, so tough. So in August of 2011, over 20 years after Shannon's murder, the district put a cold case task force together specifically to tackle Shannon's case. The case ran deep in the community at this point. The police chief in Nuego at the time, actually Pat Headland, who had been in his position since 2000, took the job to solve Shannon's case. And another officer asked to join the cold case task force, that was Mike Stevens, and he said that solving Shannon's case is the reason he became a detective. Yeah, that's incredible that the motivation to become a detective is because you want to solve Shannon's case. And then you get put on her case, right? which is great. The task force immediately put their heads together and started with victimology, the study and profile of the victim of the crime. They studied Shannon's life and talked to her friends, family, and acquaintances to build a better picture of who she was, because they're really just starting from the ground up. Multiple people who knew her well remembered that she always wore a class ring on her right hand. It was inscribed and adorned with her initials, and she never took it off. However, it was not recovered with her body. Pat Headland personally searched the Manistee Forest near the hole in the woods where Shannon was found with a metal detector looking for her ring, but they were never able to recover it, meaning whoever took her life probably also took her ring as a trophy. Meanwhile, Amy Bonner, still haunted by the call that she fielded from the person who said that they had killed Shannon, was conducting her own investigation. At the same time, Pat Headland started a Facebook group asking the community for answers, and Amy reached out to him immediately with her tips. She was so involved that many people in Nuego thought that she had started the Facebook group herself, and it appears that she did. Shortly after the formation of the group, a woman named Stephanie Hammond reached out to Amy via Facebook message and told Amy that she thought someone in her own family was involved in Shannon's murder. That's huge to think it's your own family, which yeah. you'll explain why right now, but that's huge. And coming forward after all this time. Right. The Hammond family was reportedly known around town for having a history of abuse, incest, assault, and even attempted murder. Stephanie claimed that some of the boys in the family had drugged Shannon and kept her locked in the basement of their nearby lake house for days, raping her repeatedly. Then they ran her over with a car before disposing of her body in the forest. Stephanie even brought Amy to the house where she believed this took place. However, when Amy reported her findings to police chief Pat Headland and the cold case task force did more digging, 
They found that the house didn't even have a basement, and that none of the Hammond boys were around the night that Shannon disappeared. Which makes you wonder where Stephanie heard or got this story from. You know? Yeah. But I mean, good. Sorry. I mean, good on her for coming forward if that's what someone had told her. And I'm glad the task force thoroughly checked it out. Yeah, because we can kind of rule that out now. But it's it's weird how a rumor like that would spread or or how she would like find out. Maybe her cousins were just trying to talk big and had mentioned it or or something. Yeah. I don't know. And that makes sense. I mean, especially because it's so specific. It's not like, oh, I heard that someone in my family killed her. It's like, they kept her here for days. They did this to her. Yeah. Then this is how they killed her. And they felt, and she felt so much so that she even went to police to tell them about this. Yeah, she must have really believed it. Right. So with investigators fearing that the trail had gone cold again, they started to get desperate. And they turned to an option no one wanted to have to pursue. Exhuming Shannon's body. Police wanted to read the letters that Shannon's friends and classmates placed in her casket to see if that would lead them in the right direction. Yeah, because it's possible that the killer may have been one of the people who wrote a note and placed it in her grave. Which is so smart because they could have said, I'm so sorry, or something like that. Yeah. And, and it was just placed in her grave, so nobody checked those notes before she was actually buried. But obviously this was tough. To, to have to exhume someone's body is a really big deal, especially for her dad. But her dad wanted this solved as much as they did. So with his blessing, they dug up the grave, but sadly they found no clues in the letters. They did, however, find a chunk of hair in Shannon's right hand that had not been previously tested, but it turned out to be hers, which really confuses me. I mean, why was this never tested? But then when they finally did, they concluded it was hers, but why was her own hair in her hand? And I guess we can just say that these new investigators really seem to be maybe more so driven to solve Shannon's case than the previous ones, but I don't really know because there was no testing done originally on that and the letters weren't looked at originally. Well, yeah, because at this point, the new task force had interviewed around 400 people with every lead turning up nothing. So they turned back to Shannon's victimology profile and the people who knew her best deciding to interview her good friend Julia once again. Julia says that she got off of work at 10 p.m. that night and went over to Shannon's house between 11 and 11.30 p.m., so just after Bob would have left for work. And Shannon had told her that she was going out for a bit, but they planned to hang out after that when Shannon returned. But when no one answered the door when Julia arrived, she came back in half-hour increments even letting herself in at one point and going up to Shannon's room to check on her since she wasn't answering the door and she hadn't been seen. And this is really interesting because this kind of proves that Shannon wasn't planning to be out super late if she had plans with her best friend Julia, who was literally waiting at her house. Yeah, absolutely. So the last time Julia checked the house was at 2.45 a.m. on July 18th. But remember, in their interview, the Jones brothers, who claimed that they had dropped Shannon off at her house, told police that she was home safely between 12 and 2 a.m., which means that Matt, Paul, and Shannon, or at the very least, Shannon, would have run into Julia, who had been consistently dropping by the house herself. When investigators realized that there was a hole in Matt and Paul's story, they quietly started asking around. One of Shannon's friends, Lindsay Bradley, 
had been questioned in the initial round of interviews, so they brought her back in to figure out what else they could get out of her testimony. Later in the summer that Shannon disappeared, Lindsey Bradley and Paul Jones had been riding around in his car when he asked to take her out sometime. But Lindsay asked why she would agree to that when there was another girl's ring in his car's ashtray. Paul responded by saying that the girl who wore that ring was probably dead. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. rocketmoney.com slash going west.
Before that quick break, we told you guys that Shannon's friend Lindsay was driving in Paul Jones's car within the months following Shannon's disappearance and murder. And that Lindsay asked why she would go out with Paul if he had another girl's ring in his car, to which Paul allegedly responded with, the girl who wore that ring is probably dead. So that's a really suspicious comment. I have so many questions about this. So I I am wondering if this was a class ring or a regular kind of ring, but we couldn't find specifically what the ring looked like. But I feel like that's important because if it was a class ring, that would prompt me to ask how she knew that it was a girl's. Though I did read online that female class rings tend to be a bit smaller than men's, but that's not for all schools. So how how did she know that this was a girl's ring? Like, what did it look like? Did it have initials on it? And then why would she not go to police if he said the girl was probably dead? Like, that's such a weird and unsettling thing to say. Yeah, it's a weird thing to say. And then knowing what we know now, the fact that Shannon's class ring was missing. Yeah. It just leads us, it leads us down a road of speculation. And because she, it's Lindsay's friend is Shannon who was missing at this point. So wouldn't you be like, wait, that that could be a connection? I don't know. Yeah. No offense to Lindsay, but I, I wonder a lot about this. Well, unfortunately, the ring was later found not to belong to Shannon. And as far as we can tell, her class ring has never been discovered. But this became a tipping point in the investigation because detectives were finally about to get their first real eyewitness testimony, even if it was years too late. And this also meant renewed interest in the Jones brothers. Police assumed at this point that the three of them, so the Jones brothers and Shannon, had probably been hanging out somewhere when the brothers made advances on Shannon that she rebuked. And this was their way of retaliating. And even according to their own story originally, she had decided that she was too tired to hang out. So this definitely could have angered them if this is even true. Yeah, definitely. Now, Shannon apparently considered the brothers her friends and trusted them. So she didn't think of them like she thought of, for example, Brandon. Meanwhile... Amy's own investigation was also making strides because a friend of hers named Jenny Corrigan came to her and said that she knew how Shannon had died that night over 20 years ago. Jenny came to Amy crying as she recounted what had happened. So Jenny had not been with Shannon that night, but she said she had seen her. Jenny was driving around with Dean Robinson. Remember, we mentioned him earlier. Yeah, he was one of the potential suspects early on in the investigation. So Dean and he was known to be violent. Dean and Jenny apparently came across another car while they were out on their drive. And Dean got out to talk to the guys who were standing outside of their car. They said they were looking for a girl, which sounded suspiciously like Shannon may have gotten away and they were trying to hunt her down so she didn't report what they had done to her. Now, police guessed that they eventually caught her, beat and assaulted her, and then killed her. Dean and Jenny drove back around later and saw the two brothers standing by the car again, but this time with Shannon's unconscious or possibly even lifeless body at their feet. Dean then got out of the car again to figure out what was going on, but he tripped and fell walking over to them. 
While he was on the ground, Paul Jones apparently walked over and kicked him in the face. And this was confirmed years later by Dean's sister, who claimed that she had to clean up his eyebrow from a deep cut that night. When Matt started walking toward him with a hammer, Jenny, watching them, honked the horn to scare them off, and Dean retreated to the car. Then he told police later that he knew the unconscious woman had to be Shannon. And this is so ridiculous that two people that weren't allegedly involved in her murder allegedly knew what had happened to her and even witnessed it and didn't come forward at the time or even any time remotely after it happened, assuming this eyewitness report is even true. Yeah, I mean, I definitely understand that. But to explain that a little bit, Jenny said that she originally chose not to come forward because she thought the woman on the ground had been struck by the Jones's car and was going to be taken to the hospital. But she also admitted that she was afraid of Dean, who was 19 years old at the time, getting angry at her. And by the way, Jenny was 14 at this time, so she was quite young. After police questioned them again, both Jenny and Dean Robinson identified Paul as one of the men that they saw at the scene that night. With that, police finally had enough to arrest the Jones brothers. And on June 24th, 2014, they were both charged with 18-year-old Shannon Siders' murder. Police Chief Pat Hedlund called Amy Bonner to tell her the good news, and she was so happy that she actually cried. Bob said that he had a feeling about these brothers all along, recalling that years ago, he had passed the brothers in a local grocery store and a chill went down his spine. At this time, Attorney General William Ralston and Prosecutor Robert Springstead joined forces on Shannon's case to help get her case justice in the 2015 trial against the Jones brothers. Robert Springstead detailed the horrors of what Shannon endured that night, including, quote, three blows to the skull, broken ribs, bruising to her breasts, tailbone, and pelvis, plus, most shocking of all, those post-mortem injuries to her genitals. William Ralston doubled down and described Matt as a drug-abusing criminal and a deadbeat dad, with spotty employment and a drug problem. He said in court, quote, He's not a big contributor to society. Life without parole shouldn't be taken lightly. That's as long as it gets in Michigan. This case, these facts, what they did to Shannon that night, this case fits that sentence. According to the case summary, Shannon had followed the boys into Paul's red Mercury Cougar. Another local driver recalls seeing their car turn onto M37, which is the access road to the area where Shannon's body was found, which is obviously very suspicious if this person is telling the truth. Yeah, definitely. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew met up in the grocery store parking lot in Nuego, or a grocery store parking lot. About two hours later, the Jones brothers came back to join them, but this time without Shannon, claiming they dropped her off at home. So if there's witnesses saying this, then that's pretty suspicious. Yeah, so this this is difficult too, because if somebody says they saw their car turn on this particular road and everybody in the group knows that they returned without Shannon and said they dropped her off, it's like, did you actually drop her off or did you just kill her? Yeah, but then we have Julia saying that she was there between, you know, 11.30 and like 2 a.m. At Shannon's house, yes. Right, but she didn't see the brothers or Shannon. Right, which, and if she was coming back in 30-minute intervals, 
I mean, that's pretty big. If she missed them, she would have just missed them, but she also would have seen Shannon at her own house. Yeah. So others in the group remember that the Jones brothers were acting calmly and normally that night, even after they returned. Around sunrise, the group moved again to the banks of the Muskegon River, where they continued to drink. From the day the Jones brothers were arrested to the day they were convicted, the brothers maintained their innocence, sticking with their original story of having dropped Shannon off early on the morning of July 18th. But on July 21st, 2015, almost 26 years to the day after Shannon's murder, the Jones brothers were convicted. Matt Jones, to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and his brother Paul Jones to 30 to 75 years. Shannon's parents, Bob and Mary, both read victim impact statements aloud at their daughter's trial. Mary explained that her culture had gifted her a deep spiritual connection with her daughter and that she still felt their connection. She stated, quote, "'Nothing in this world will ever replace the whole you have created.'" Nothing this court can do will ever replace or repair what you took from this world. Bob stated, quote, Your kids will marry and give you grandchildren. I don't get that. I have a headstone and a gravesite. Bob also told a reporter after the sentencing that he was heartbroken he would never experience having grandchildren and that Shannon would have been a great mom. He fought tirelessly, as we know, for his daughter and was relieved for it to be over, but nothing would bring Shannon back. Now, we do have some updates here that have come about since the 2015 conviction. We can't speak to the validity of this claim, but in December of last year, so 2021, Dean Robinson, whose eyewitness account was a massive component of the brother's conviction, recanted his testimony. In a signed affidavit that he turned into police while in prison serving time for a violent assault, so yeah, Dean is also a criminal, 51-year-old Dean Robinson stated, quote, I did not have any personal knowledge regarding Matt or Paul Jones, nor did I witness their involvement in a homicide. Up until the point I testified during the trial, I had never seen Matt or Paul Jones. I was lying under oath when I testified about any matter about Matt or Paul Jones being involved in a homicide. He now claims that his testimony had been spoon-fed to him by investigators. This makes me wonder, since he was in prison when he's saying this, if he wanted to recant it so he didn't look like a, like a snitch to his fellow inmates. Either that or he thought he was going to get some sort of deal right. out of telling the truth. But, I mean... The fact that we have uh, Jenny Corrigan, who was in that car with him that day, you know, she's 14 years old. She saw this. And when she came forward, she actually cried about what she had saw or ha had seen. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is frustrating because you're like, OK, which is it? Is Are you lying now or were you lying then? Well, Dean had been at the hole in the woods that night, but claims that he was drinking whiskey and doing LSD and then drove around with Jenny Corrigan and that it was a pretty uneventful evening. Dean, however, has also been convicted of perjury along with his rap sheet of violent crimes. So whether this is true or not, we can't really speculate, but there is a growing movement for a retrial because there was no actual DNA that could concretely link the Jones brothers to Shannon's murder. 
Former Detroit news reporter turned private investigator Bill Proctor is leading it and has a website, a YouTube channel, and a podcast in the works, interviewing other people who are essential to the case and posing new theories. Bill and his project, Seeking Justice, have helped free more than 10 people who were wrongfully convicted. Attorneys for the brothers, Robert Higby and Todd Perkins, filed the affidavit with Dean's statement with Nuevo County Circuit Court. While the brothers have exhausted their appeals, given this new information, Bill and the attorneys hope to convince a judge to conduct a new trial. Bob is aware of these new efforts, and while he mostly stays away from it, he hears bits and pieces reported back to him from people in the town. Bill came to see him at his home in Nuevo once, asking to chat and handing him a business card, but Bob handed it back before telling him to never come see him again. Well, it makes sense because the guy in front of him is trying to say, look, this guy that you think killed your daughter or these guys that you think killed your daughter didn't do it, and I'm trying to prove that. So yeah. that's like kind of a big F you to Bob because he's like, look, I believe they did it, and like, how dare you reopen this wound? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a huge slap in the face in my opinion. And all of this, of course, has taken a huge toll on Bob, who suffers from COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and was so ill during Shannon's trial that he was actually hospitalized. Shannon's mother, Mary, passed away in 2018 after a long illness, according to her obituary. She had a traditional Chippewa burial and celebration of life and was cremated. Her ashes beside her life partner, Dennis, whom her obituary called the love of her life and he died less than a month before she did. Bob Siders is currently 73 and still living in Nuego, Michigan. So although Bob and many others believe that the Jones brothers really are behind Shannon's senseless assault and murder, there are also people out there who believe in their innocence. So what do you guys think? Thank you so much everybody for listening to this episode of going west yes thank you guys so much for listening to this episode and on friday we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into obviously it's devastating to think that the wrong people could be behind bars for multiple reasons but i'm sure it's incredibly difficult for bob to even fathom because especially at 73 years old and having to deal with the heartache of losing his daughter he couldn't possibly endure the pain of another trial but i guess we'll see what happens what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I just hope that no matter what, justice is served regardless. But yeah, I really hope that he doesn't have to go through another trial. Obviously, the lack of DNA evidence is crucial, especially since the eyewitness statements can't even really fully be trusted. But it does seem like the brothers lied during their original questioning with police and that someone she was with that evening did this to her. I mean, I, I think the fact that witnesses saw their car turning on that road, the fact that they returned without Shannon, but Julia never saw Shannon come home, nor did she see the brothers. Like to me, that feels like enough suspicion that they could be behind it, but there just needs to be like one more big thing to help prove it. But I, I don't know, I, it's, it's so tough. It's very hard without physical evidence and you know, that's just the fact of the matter. Something we do know about the brothers though, is that they are criminals, they are known to be violent. So it, it definitely seems possible. It's not like they're out there living their best lives. Like they weren't doing that anyway. Yeah. So that leads me to believe that they could have been capable of doing this. But 
I just wish we knew for sure. And of course, I wish her, her father knew for sure. But that's why this case is so tough. So thank you guys so much for listening. And we'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, go over to our uh, discussion group over on Facebook, which is Going West Discussion Group. And just let us know what you think about this case, whether you think the the Jones brothers are guilty or not. Yeah, and we also have Instagram at Going West Podcast and Twitter at Going West Pod. We love interacting with you guys. So leave your comments and let us know. And don't forget to share. Also, if you want some extra episodes of Going West, head on over to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Going West Podcast. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger.